Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. The ball is in the CTU's court. After 80-plus meetings and going above and beyond to address the CTU leadership's various issues and concerns, we are out of runway. This Ben Jarofsky Show, Bidding J Bonus Interview, is brought to you in part by SEIU Healthcare, Illinois, Indiana, the Chicago Federation of Labor, and the Chicago Reader. Bidding J, take it away. Bonus time on the Ben Jarofsky Show. As I speak, it's February. Friday, February 5th, 2021. That voice at the outset, Mayor Lori Lightfoot. So frustrated uh, over her negotiations with the CTU that she's mixing up all her metaphors. The ball is talk. in the CTU's court. That's tennis. And then there's the airport metaphor. We're running out of runway. That's how frustrated. Listen, I'm always trying to come up with good analogies and metaphors, uh, Mayor Lightfoot, so I can share your frustration. It's really hard. You know, so a uh, ball out of your court, a tennis metaphor. All right. Uh, as we do with um, uh, all bonus interviews, I like to read uh, the headline, what's in the paper, so you have a sense, if you're listening to this six months from now, or whatever, what, what's going on. And this is apropos, because I'll be talking about this with uh, my distinguished guests. I'm going to read two headlines from today's New York Times. Trump refuses a call to testify at Senate trial, the impeachment. You figure Trump would love that moment. Uh, and the other headline right next to it, vote by House ejects Green from two panels. The Green in question, of course, is Marjorie Taylor Green. Uh, and those are two headlines that will be very uh, apropos to my conversation with this distinguished guest that I'm bringing on. And yes, I've already been promising this all day today. A distinguished guest. Uh, introduce yourself. I'm so distinguished that I have to introduce myself. I mean, come on, what kind of entrance? What kind of a entrance is that? Grand entrance and everything. Like, and here we have. Go ahead. Who are you? Uh, Mick Dumkey. Thanks, Mick Dumkey. I yes. I, I, this is this is he. I'm here. Good to be with you again. I, if it was up to me, he would be on the show every week, but he's a busy guy. So maybe once a month, I get my old friend, Mick Dumkey, my former partner in crime at the Reader and at the Hideout uh, for First Tuesday to talk politics. Uh, few people in the world have my obsession with politics as much as Mick Dumkey. And he can do local, state, national. And even though he's a baby compared to me, he could do 70s trivia. Mick, I'm going to really refrain from doing a whole discourse on Miss uh, Mrs. America, which I finally got around to seeing, which is about the ERA in the 70s and the politics of it. I was utterly obsessed with that show. I'm great doing a show. great show. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm doing a whole special show next week where we're bringing in ERA vets who were there for you know, the new Schlafly. So let's 
I know we have to focus on other things, but, but I know, then, but I mean, let's just pause real briefly. One thing, there's a lot to talk about that show. You'll get into it in the weeds when you have your, your guests next week, but just striking to me that how liberal national politics still was, and this is the Ford administration where this is set much of it. It goes on in time, but it's like, you know, you're, you're talking to like the assistant attorney general, I think during the Ford administration, right. And stuff. And it's just so, it's so progressive um, relative to where we are now, you know, relative to a few years earlier in the sixties, maybe it wasn't, but that's the, that was sort of the lingering impression I had. And of course the theme of the show is how, the right was uh, even amidst this sort of progressive era that, that it that continued on into the seventies, how the right was building strength. That's, yes. that's really what the show's, you know, the major theme is. Absolutely. And it's fascinating. Uh, yeah. And, and even before Ford, it begins with the Nixon administration uh, and Jill Ruckelhaus, who was a prominent Republican moderate was uh, an ally of Gloria Steinem and Betty Friedan and Bella Abzug and just the notion that this will get into what we really will we'll start talking. We'll start with national, or get to local if we get to local. Uh, but the, when I look at where the Republican Party is right now, where Adam Kinzinger and uh, Fred Upton from Michigan, your old uh, hometown, are one of the few Republicans willing to take a stand against nutbags wing nuts uh, in their party. And I think of where the Republican Party was in 1972 or 71 when Mrs. America, the show begins, and at least half of it was supporting the ERA. There was support for uh, a woman's right to choose. And additionally, on the Democratic side, there were Democrats who were against the ERA, against abortion rights. I just think of what the world was like politically in the 1970s, Mick, where it was much more of a mix in each party. To where we are now, it's amazing. Go ahead, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I jumped in and uh, cut you off because, yeah, I agree with you. It's it's a, a fascinating, a fascinating uh, snapshot you get out of that show. And just to remind everybody um, out there, if you knew it already or if you didn't know it, that both of the parties, of course, were much more diverse. I mean, there have been studies that have found, of course, that uh, you know, in, in more recent times, that the most conservative Democrat is more liberal in Congress than, than the most liberal Republican. So there, there is a neat dividing line and people like to talk about some of the swing votes, the occasional swing votes, the rare swing votes you get. And almost everybody files politics knows their name because they are so rare and so unusual. Joe Manchin on the Democrat side, for instance, and, you know, uh, Susan Collins or Lisa Murkowski on the Republican side. And, and, you know, there's just a handful of them. And there's a, there's only a few more in the House, actually. Um, but you're right. Back at, at that point in time, both of the parties had much bigger tents. And for better and for worse. I mean, the Democrats that we all think of as the left of center party now, still into the 70s, into the 80s, had uh, Southern Democrats who... Um, you know, were even then more aligned in many ways with, uh, they were certainly more conservative than, than a lot of Republicans. Um, and eventually that's just the way the realignment went, right? It started with Strom Thurmond's alliance with Richard Nixon, arguably, and, um, and then John Connolly from Texas, I believe, uh, his alliance with Richard Nixon. These were 
These are people who at one point in time were Southern Democrats who ended up uh, becoming Republicans and being uh, sort of the leaders in the flip of uh, that segment of the Democratic Party over to the Republicans. Yeah, yeah. and uh, when you were saying that, we're not supposed to go down this road, but I did a deep dive not too long ago on efforts to uh, eliminate the Electoral College. And in 1971 or 70, I can't remember which year, believe it or not, uh, there was a, a, an effort that got out of the House and uh, died in the Senate. It was supported. An effort to abolish the Electoral College or to nullify the Electoral College was, a, uh, was supported by Richard Nixon and the Republicans. And it ultimately died in the Senate to a large degree because of a Democratic, a Southern Democrats like Sam Irvin, who was then the Democratic senator from North Carolina. And Mick, it just boggles my mind. The Republicans would never give up the Electoral College right now uh, because it's their lifeline. You know what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah, because they've lost the popular majority, you know, in, in as we are discussing off air in the last, uh, what, five, five of the last six presidential elections, the Republicans have lost the popular vote. And the forecast is that that's only going to get more challenging for them to get it back if their current positioning stands as is. So, of course, they're going to grasp onto this antiquated system that uh, enables them to have a chance, you know. And by the way, the Senate... Um, no one's proposing changing the uh, the way the U.S. Senate is made up, at least not it's not part of a mainstream conversation at this point in time. But the Senate favors Republicans. Absolutely. You know, it's uh, low population states have the same power as high population states. And and that was built into the U.S. system from the beginning, because for all the talk about democracy, of course, we know our so-called founding fathers uh, were very wary of it at the same time. They were very wary of of absolute popular rule. And so they put in the Senate and they put in the electoral college and these other, uh, you know, checks or breaks on, on the democratic small D system. Yeah. Well, uh, make the district Columbia a state, make Puerto Rico a state by a boom, by a bing over for the Republicans in the Senate. Okay. It's 50, 50 Guam. And what about our uh, other territories? Yeah, let's let's. Well, I wouldn't put District Columbia in the same category as Guam or even Puerto Rico, but I I think that should be at the top of the list. Kind of treated the same way. Yes, honestly, it is. is. Local Uh, representation, but no no uh, vote. Absolutely. And and for that matter, we have David Ferris on uh, this political scientist who you would really like, Mick, if you ever met him. But he advocates split California in the four states. <laughs> That'll really screw him up. Uh, and uh, well, some so of your I, some of your Republican listeners, I'm sure there are some Republican listeners, Ben, uh, are arguing uh, for uh, separating Chicago and Cook County oh, yes. from uh, the rest of Illinois. So there are all these things, and I just saw a. Um, a headline about, uh, you know, legislators in Texas who, of course, are, uh, pro- you know, want to propose secession uh, for yeah. Texas, you know, a lone star state. 
so would I agree to let Texas secede uh, in exchange for dividing California into four sections? Mick, let me think about that and get back to you. <laughs> All right, let's discuss the state of the Republican Party since that's where we sort of started off with. Uh, uh, and we were already off our agenda. Mick and I spent like 10 minutes going over an agenda and we've just completely thrown it out. We've- 10 minutes, most of which we spent complaining about the performance of the Bulls this week. But we did prepare for 10 minutes. Uh, that is true. That is so, true. I will confirm. All right. Adam Kinzinger, the congressman uh, from the 16th Congressional District here in Illinois, the Republican congressman uh, from the 16th Congressional District here in Illinois, is making quite a name for himself on a national uh, scale as being one of the few Republicans who is just unabashed about speaking out against the current trend with the Republican Party, uh, everything from Donald Trump making up and insisting that he won an election that he lost to uh, Donald Trump giving a speech where he fires up a bunch of MAGA hatters and who uh, stormed the White House seeking to overturn, somehow or other overturn uh, the election to the latest uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, the uh, Republican congresswoman from the state of QAnon, I mean the state of Georgia, uh, who uh, was uh, uh, stripped of her committee positions yesterday at a vote at the Congress uh, by the Congress. Kissinger is one of the few who speaks out against this trend, says the Republican Party in its current state is losing its mind. I've been accused, Mick, by some of my uh, dear listeners of the lefty persuasion of being too kind to Adam Kissinger when I praise him. Uh, for his efforts to uh, stand up uh, to MAGA. What's your general sense of what Adam Kinsinger is up to? And uh, do you praise him for this? Well, first of all, I don't think you're alone in your um, excitement at anyone who seems to... uh, seems to uh, display some form of ideals or morals in public life right now. It's like, uh, as your guest on Friday, uh, a.k.a. my wife, Romana, um, and I often talk about, you know, competence right now gets people excited. It's like, you know, when you find an elected official, an executive, especially in an executive position, um, or or some other prominent position who appears to be competent, competent and thoughtful, you celebrate because the bar has been lowered so much over the last few years. Um, right now I am, uh, I'm truly, I'm definitely in the camp that welcomes people who are speaking the truth. And, you know, it is, as I talk about with some other friends, my brother, I don't think you've ever met my brother, Ben, but he's, um, maybe even bigger political junkie and I am used to work on Capitol Hill and so on. Um, but as he and I always discuss, you know, we're not debating tax policy. anymore. I mean, the, the fights that we're having right now as a country in politics are about truth. They're about protecting a democratic Republic um, from assaults from people who are trying to displace the truth with lies and propaganda and conspiracies and, you know, using those to undermine the, uh, the vote, uh, undermine elections and, and so forth and so on. So I think we're beyond just having debates about ideology or even policy as important, as crucial as all those are, we're talking about something that's much more fundamental. And so in that spirit, Absolutely. I'm excited to hear when I hear anybody of either party, including Adam Kinzinger, 
who is calling out lies and liars. I think that is something we should um, we should lift up at this point in time. Now, is that good enough? No, of course that's not good enough in the end. But it's a good thing in its in itself. So, like you, and I think like many others, I'm curious to see of you know both where. Adam Kinzinger is able to go with this within his own party. And also, um, you know, what, what are, does he have other motives? Is this part of some sort of political scheme or something? I'm less, much less concerned about that. I must say than just the fact that, you know, he's calling out lies and liars. I think that's a great thing. Yeah. I, I, uh, I'm with you on that. Uh, if Adam Kinzinger were to run against, uh, Tammy Duckworth for Senate, let's say in 2022, I don't think there's a way in the world I would vote for Adam Kinzinger against Tammy Duckworth. This is my political, this is me speaking for me, my political alignment. Um, but if it was between Adam Kinzinger and Marjorie Taylor Greene for president, I'd be like, where do I donate the money uh, first? All right, so let's get at that. Adam Kinzinger is one of 11 Republicans who voted to expel Marjorie Taylor Greene for her utterly insane and violent comments uh, that she's made down through the years and her just really weird behavior. Some of the stuff she didn't get chastised for me. I don't know if you saw the whole thing with Congresswoman Cory Bush and all that, which like that's not even mentioned because it's just so recent. uh, Her comments to Cory Bush, which are really inappropriate. But anyway, um, there's been so much unprofessional and, uh, and, you know, violence laden and uh, false, you know, just outright false stuff that's come out of her mouth that you can hardly index it all, yeah. you know, I mean, so that we're, we're having a hard time keeping up with it and more of it keeps coming out. That's your point. Yeah. Well, yeah. And then, and then it's like preposterous. I heard a tangent with a tangent, like her speech defending herself, like as if this is a defense. She says, everything I said was before I was a congresswoman. So you can't hold me accountable for that, which is absurd. And it's not even true because you were, <laughs> you just had this uh, confrontation with Cory Bush, which I don't know if you saw, but took place in the halls of Congress. And uh, a Congresswoman Cory Bush asked to have her office removed because she didn't want to be near this nutcase who's threatening her and making all these kinds of off-the-wall accusations. So, But only 11 Republicans make, only 11. Only 11 would take that vote to punish her, hold her accountable for what she said. And they're supported by the mainstream of the Republican Party. Is there any chance in your your humble opinion that Adam Kinzinger can find a home in a Republican Party, which is dominated by MAGA lovers who support Marjorie Taylor Greene? It all depends on the votes. Everybody's just counting votes. So. Marjorie Taylor Greene is not the only person who has um, either those views or similar views or is at least politically aligned to the same way that she is, right? Full on in in the Trump era. Trump may be out of office, but they're still full on Trumpists, okay? She's certainly not the only one of those people. But how many of the others who have just gone along with everything during the Trump era um, are simply making crass political calculations. They are just counting votes. I think most of them probably. And I don't say that to excuse them at all, Ben. I think it's like, you know, when you give up your ideals, you give up your principles. Um, Yes, I understand politics is about counting votes. Politics is about um, 
being able to get things done. But, you know, you have to stand for something. And if this was ever an era where you, you need to stand up and be clear that you're in the favor of democracy and the truth, I mean, ah, uh, the choice should be clear. But in your question, I think that um, Kinzinger or the other people who are saying, look ahead, the Republican Party cannot survive if we continue down the path of Trumpism that we're on, um, just even in terms of practical, you know, matters like just counting the votes, they're just not there. I mean, you know, Trump and Trumpism has never won a national election. I mean, yes, he, he won the Electoral College. I'm not saying that he didn't win by the rule set, but they have never won a majority. They, they lost the Senate, um, you know, which was a clear choice between Trumpism and another alternative path. And um, so at some point in time, are there going to be enough Republicans who say, look, we can't win this way? Uh, I think that's possible. But right now we don't see it. They just, you know, there's just not enough of them with that kind of foresight. And, and they're calculating that most of the of their uh, voters and followers who are most fired up and most outspoken are still in the Trump camp. So it's just simply a follow the numbers game. Right. I mean, that's the way I see it. What do you think? No, I, I don't see a future for Adam Kinzinger uh, in the Republican Party. I feel that he has to uh, either become a Democrat, which would be very difficult because most of his political views would have no home whatsoever in the Democratic Party, starting with his attitude toward abortion. So that would be just very difficult for him uh, to win. Uh, any seat as a Democrat, unless he just completely becomes more liberal. Well, I mean, I, in my lifetime, I've seen that with a few politicians who just actually underwent a whole transformation. Can't think of one right now, but it'll come to me in the conversation. But it's very rare. Uh, and uh, so I don't see a future for him. The only thing is that I talk about this with many of my guests, if, if like a bunch of MAGA hat wearers jump into, let's say, the Republican primary for U.S. Senate or the Republican primary for uh, Illinois governor, and they split the MAGA vote and he wins the quote unquote moderate vote, then he ekes out a victory uh, in that primary and then he has a chance. Do you follow what I'm saying? Go ahead. Yeah, I, th I think that's possible. I also think I think you're right. I mean, I think it's um, it's not just who at this moment controls 51% of the votes in the Republican party. It's also like, are you going to um, be seen as a leader for a, a, a significant enough segment where uh, you're going to have some kind of influence going forward, whether it's winning a divided primary, like what you're talking about, or whether at some point in time you're, um, you know, if you can hold on to your seat, is there, are you a force just by staking out your own terrain, you know, your own place? You know, we don't have much, we don't have much, um, many other examples of that right now, but there have been examples like that in history, right? I mean, you know, when, when John McCain uh, was sort of had his moment in 2000, um, he was seen as the, you know, the maverick Republican who, Sometimes, you know, he voted for, he was a, a hawk on defense and he was conservative on, on a lot of social issues, but on other stuff, he was just, you know, he was a campaign finance guy, uh, totally against like Mitch McConnell, who's like 
let them give whatever they want. That's freedom of speech. You know, McCain and, and Russ Feingold, one of the most liberal members of the Senate, you know, famously worked together to pass campaign finance uh, restrictions. So is there a place for somebody like that still in the Republican Party? Right now, it's hard to see, but I think there will be again at some point in time. Things swing so much. The other thing, Ben, is that um, unlike the other people who might have been in a position to do what Kinzinger is trying to do, he's pretty young. A lot of them are 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 old and they just don't, aren't going to have, they're going to run out of time, you know? So Kinzinger probably if, you know, if I don't know exactly how he's thinking, but I I think it's, it's not a bad bet that even if he loses a battle right now, there's a chance that standing up at this moment, things could swing back his way. Even if he, let's say he loses his seat, there's a chance you, you end up winning in the long run by losing with a little bit of honor, you know, um, I've always I've always thought you and I, you know, back in the day when uh, Jesse Jackson Jr. was mulling, running against Richard M. Daley for mayor in 2007, and he ultimately pulled the plug on his campaign. I thought to this day that was just absolutely ruinous, you know, for the trajectory that he was on. I mean, it was he, he probably would have lost, but by running a good, smart campaign, he would have been on the map. He would have been well positioned for whatever he's going to do next. You know, that that's a whole store, other story that we could do a whole show on the cowardice of high profile Democrats to take a stand against Richard M. Daly in the O's, particularly in 07. I could go on and on. Mick knows that's when I actually met Mick and I was utterly obsessed with uh, disappointment at Chicago because the mayor that four years was so corrupt. There was one horrendous corruption after another and it was just sitting there it was just like a challenge was sitting there go after mayor daly force chicagoans to make a choice are they going to continue down this path of corruption or are they going to take a stand against it and you're right mick chances are like all the powers with daily the corporate power this i'll bet you the editorial boards would have been with daily he could out fundraise them but you will get in the long run, I think you'll, um, you'll, you'll emerge with a little st- uh, stature if you run a strong campaign and even you, you fall short of it. You could absolutely, absolutely. I just, I've never understood that. Why, um, why more people didn't see uh, the fact that you get exposure and you show what you could potentially do, why they didn't see that as an asset. Why like, you know, the prospect of, losing an election is enough to uh, just say, oh, forget it. Then again, you know, you and I haven't run for anything. So yeah, right, I, know, I was going to say. I know from hearing from people who do go through elections and they lose, that it really stings. Even if people say all along, oh, you're going to lose, you're going to lose. You know, they say, listen, it really hurts. It really stings. You put yourself out there in that way. It's kind of like you and I put our hearts and souls into something we write. And then it lands with a thud. You know? um, it, 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 it does. It kind of stings. It's just kind of like, oh. Are you talking about our uh, water fund slush fund story? <laughs> Are you talking about that? We worked for hours going through budgets. This is a story that just in case anyone else cares and you want to Google this, Ben and I wrote about the use of water and sewer budget funds and how not all the money that was coming in was actually used on water and sewer expenses. 
You know, Ben, that was a great story. That was an important story. No one read it. It literally got flushed. To, to use a terrible <laughs> pun here, it got flushed as soon as we published it. It just disappeared. But it's amazing. That is a story that I refer to on a regular basis. I was just talking with a colleague who's doing some reporting on water issues, and I brought that story up again. You know, it just taught us so much about how things actually work. They're not what they seem. And that's what that story was about. So, yeah, you're right. The bigger picture here, though, is everyone in politics. I still... My argument is that you can lose with honor and gain in the process. By the way, just to pour salt on the wound of that story, just let me just take a moment to pour more salt on the wound. I'm going to smash the fourth wall a little here. I'm not going to reveal names. That story cost Mick and me money because we took one of our key sources out for dinner. The dude, we just didn't take it to McDonald's. He wanted to go to a nice restaurant. He was like, oh, I'll have some more wine. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think we tried We tried to expense that meal as we would have um, almost <laughs> any other publication that wasn't leading money. But, uh, yeah, no. reader, I'm pretty sure it was if it got approved, which I don't remember, maybe it did get approved. We basically were told there were no other expenses available to us for the rest of the year. For the rest of the year. Yeah, um, by the way, so just to give you a sense of where the Republicans are before we leave the Republicans, and, and this is just a rough approximation of where they are, but Adam Kinzinger, of course, is taking this stand. Uh, and he's being chastised by Republican leaders throughout the state of Illinois who are proposing to censor him. All right. Uh, in the Congress, follow me this, ladies and gentlemen, uh, Liz Cheney. <laughs> Liz Cheney. Can't believe I'm, uh, I can't ever have a nice word to say about anybody named Cheney. But Liz Cheney, the uh, uh, congresswoman from Wyoming uh, who voted to impeach uh, uh, Donald Trump. There were th- uh, she's the third highest ranking Congress uh, person in uh, the Republican Party uh, uh, in Congress. And there was a vote to strip her of her party leadership. She got 66 people, Mick. I think it was 66 voted against her. Uh, I, I presume Marjorie Taylor Greene was one of them. They have not publicized that vote. Uh, fast forward to yesterday's vote. Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who's made all these abhorrent comments and has behaved obscenely for the last several years, anti-Semitic uh, comments, et cetera, and so forth. Only 11 only 11 Republicans vote against her. And Liz Cheney was not one of them. So Liz Cheney fought like hell to save her leadership position, okay, and still faced 66 no votes. And then she immediately flipped and went with uh, uh, with Marjorie Taylor Greene. All right, I've, I've stood out on a limb long enough. I'll let Kissinger get it. So right there, that tells you a lot, Nick. If you just want to give a gauge of where the Republicans are, 66 to 11. All right, that's true. And I agree uh, those numbers are, are telling, but there's a couple things to point out, which, which only make your case stronger, I would say. But first of all, that um, the vote on Liz Cheney was taken in private. So they did not, as you've noted, they did not have to publicize their vote. They were not on the record. So how many people um, were going to vote for or against her in private and their votes might have changed, you know, in public? For all I know, there might have been more people who voted against Liz Cheney if the vote were public, because the way Republican politics are working right now, you support one of the Trump critics, you yourself are called a rhino and, and a, you know, a traitor and everything else. So yeah. that may have shifted one way or the other. 
Um, the second point is uh, about Liz Cheney's own vote. We don't know what kind of deal was cut. That had that vote had the look of a deal. Being <laughs> you know, Kevin McCarthy, I'm going to go out. I'm gonna, you know the the Republican leader in the House. I'm going to claim. I'm going to call this whole thing a big tent party. But the deal is, we're going to back Liz, and then we're going to turn around and back Marjorie. Yeah. Okay, and that's what we're going to do. And uh, you know. Liz uh, certainly comes from a family who knows about making deals. Okay. So, you know, that's how I interpreted her vote on, on Marjorie. It's just like, that was part of the package. She, she got the, the benefit of the party. And so she was going to cast her vote the same yeah, way. I think you're right. I think a deal was cut. And then she got to say, I didn't apologize. Nobody apologizes except for I've already run this by uh, Romana. So I'm going to run it by you. Okay. So uh, here you go. I'm going to put you, uh, I'm going to challenge you. And You're your make me job, take a public vote like the Democrats made the Republicans take no, a public vote on March. I would not do that. I would not do that to any working journalists. Uh, all right. So here, uh, this is from Lynn Sweet's column. I'm going to give Lynn Sweet a shout out. Uh, she took the opportunity to quote. Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene in her defense, Mar- Marjorie Taylor Greene's defense, her oration before the uh, uh, the House yesterday. And uh, I'm going to read you what Marjorie Taylor Greene said, and then I'm going to ask you to interpret it and uh, put it into English, okay, that people can understand. So here we go. <coughs> Here's Marjorie Taylor Greene, and I ready. quote. Get my translation skills ready. Here we go. Quote. I was allowed to believe things that weren't true, and I would ask questions about them and talk about them. And that is absolutely what I regret, because if I if it weren't for the Facebook posts and comments that I liked in 2018, I wouldn't be standing here today. And you couldn't point a finger and accuse me of anything wrong because I've lived a very good life that I'm proud of. I was allowed to believe things that weren't true. What the hell does that mean? I was, who is she blaming in this sense? That, 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 that sentence means nothing. It means nothing. I mean, you, and I both know what it is. It's a non-apology apology. It, it's a way of, you know, appearing to, it's sort of like, I'm sorry that you misunderstood me. You know, uh, that's essentially what she's saying is like, I'm very sorry that you screwed up and that you blamed it on me. And she's of course blaming whatever, whoever they are out there, the tech companies, you know, the Democrats, whatever that's implicit in her statement, but she's certainly not holding herself to any kind of uh, account. Yeah. Okay. That is true. What is it again? I'm, I'm going to steal that line and use it. I'm sorry. What is, what is this? What did you say? I'm sorry that you misunderstood what I said. Okay. <laughs> that is unbelievable. Uh, well, anyway, yeah, no, I, I, I do. Right. You, hear, you hear people say that it's like they're, we're forced to apologize. The pressure comes down. You know, I'm sorry that um, anyone misconstrued what I, it doesn't, there, there's the apology where it's like, I'm sorry I said something that offended someone yes. or I'm sorry that I did something wrong. But then there's always, there's the people who do the little twist. I'm sorry you misunderstood what I said. I, I never yeah. meant that. I'm sorry yeah. you misunderstood. Yeah. yeah. Yo. I'm sorry about that, Ben. I'm sorry you screwed up. 
Uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, I, I'm, I'm a student of Republican apologies. I've done one on uh, Congresswoman uh, Mary Miller's apology for having said that, quote, Hitler was right. Uh, that an apology that ended up bashing the media somehow it was their fault. Oh, always, uh, always. Why, why, uh, why waste an opportunity, right? Yeah. And then, of course, I did an analysis of Fraternal Order Police President Johnny uh, Canizera's apology, uh, which for saying that storming the Capitol was no big deal. Just a bunch of guys having fun, huh? Uh, I don't know if you saw that apology. The gist of that apology was his comments were made before he, I don't know what what he could have seen that he didn't see by the time he, he, you know, when he made his comments. But if I had seen the full thing, it would have been a different statement. So I well, guess it's the fault of the reporter that called him. Yeah, no, of course, of course. And then the, uh, uh, like the uh, national FOP president, you know, issued his own sort of mild, relatively mild rebuke of John. And, uh, but, but that I, I thought was notable. It was kind of like when you're a leader of the FOP and you lose the FOP, you're really, <laughs> you're really in hot water. Uh, but he'll always have the sometimes sometimes love I mean he's tease about it sometimes loves John Canizer they're always putting photos of him in the paper uh, so he may have lost his uh, his national president but he's gained the sometimes alright uh, we'll close with national by talking impeachment uh, before the show, uh, Mick was teasing me two non-lawyers discussing constitutional law. So let's stay away from the constitutional law. <laughs> Sounds like a great podcast idea. We might be able to make something out of this thing. Man. Uh, well, we, considering that neither one of us is a music writer and that we devoted a whole segment to Bobby Dylan uh, and another segment to Bruce Springsteen and neither one of us is a sports writer. We dedicated a whole subject to football. Uh, anything is possible. All right, impeachment. Good idea, bad idea for the Democrats. Go. Well, it's it may be a bad idea politically, but it's a necessary idea. I mean, they they have to they have to hold them accountable. It's the only way they can do it. And I'm I'm overusing the word accountability, which has become like you and I used to joke reform at election season in Chicago or transparency. These are become buzzwords accountability is accountable is one of them right now but that said i think it's still the truth they had to do something they can't just let this thing go and um who wants the distraction of another impeachment trial uh, i don't want it i'd rather see uh you know the new administration try to deal with COVID. i'd rather see the focus on that entirely and focus on people getting vaccinated and of course, you know, Democrats say, well, we have to walk and chew gum at the same time and so on. But the truth is that it is an enormous, um, an enormous uh, use of resources and, you know, takes the oxygen out of the room and people are following it and everything else. But what else are they supposed to do? I, I just don't think you can let it go. That's not appropriate. I'm with you. You know what's really dispiriting is uh, I, I wrote down what you said. And I understand exactly what you meant when you said it, but it's still dispiriting. Doing the right thing is going to hurt you politically. And that I just, happens all the time. Yeah. <laughs> that happens, just, that's, that's politics right there. I mean, not entirely, but that is, that is like one of the rules of politics, right? That's why more politicians don't do the right thing. Yeah, so they just always do the wrong thing. But they're, they're, you know, this is going to hurt you politically. 
punishing a man, punishing a miscreant uh, who just, you know, incited a riot uh, in order to steal an election is bad politically. And let's break that down. Mick, why do you think it's bad politically? Well, because I tend to believe that if that um, many, if not most American voters are, um, you know, they're, they're not partisans one way or another. They may vote, they may vote Democratic or Republican the vast majority of the time, but most people consider themselves unattached to, to different parties. And I think what they see as the partisan rancor really just wears people out because they have real problems they have to deal with in their own lives. And there's just a frustration when it seems like everything going on in Washington is partisan back and forth, which isn't to say that the back and forth isn't important, but I think there is kind of a weariness. So whether that's the vast majority of Americans or whether that is like a key block that swings elections one way or the other, um, I think that probably most people would prefer not to have an impeachment trial, but that's not the same question as asking voters, do you think there should be an impeachment trial? And I think the polls have shown that there's a majority who seems to think that it's necessary. Um, But I don't think that's what my point is I'm making is I don't think thinking it's necessary is not the same as wanting it to happen. And I believe that most people would prefer that there wasn't a need for it, even though they believe there is a need for it. Well, I prefer it didn't happen. Uh, that said, I, I personally, this is just me speaking, uh, I'm looking forward to it. Make my attitude about any of these things. I had this conversation uh, with Dan Mialopoulos when he came on the show. Uh, we did a whole thing about transparency and Michael Madigan. And it's like any, I, I mean, this is just a reporter geek in me. Any opportunity I get to see what may have happened. Oh, yeah. You know? yeah I'm like, bring it on, dude. You know, like release the emails, release the, you know, have an investigation. That's it. But that's just me. I'm just, I think, I'm, you know. Well, I, I completely so. agree with you. But an investigation, I, I think there are multiple investigations underway, right? In, into uh, what happened in the, the insurrection, the coup attempt. Um, there are multiple investigations mm-hmm. in you know, going on right now from law enforcement agencies, from different panels or uh, committees in Congress. But the issue of the impeachment trial is that that's not just an investigation. It's also theater. I mean, it's a, it's a trial, but it's also political theater. I'm not saying I don't enjoy political theater. I certainly do. Um, But uh, you know, I'm, you know, I'll be honest. I I wish at this moment in time uh, that, um, we're, we're moving on, but I don't think that that is appropriate. And I, um, I, I guess I wish, I wish that we could move on. That's, that's what I would, I would say. And I think that it's important to have this trial, even though we know that, um, it is going to be theater. The Democrats will have their talking points. The Republicans will have their talking points and sit back and watch, get your popcorn ready. I'm I'm really looking forward to uh, Senator Lindsey Graham's, uh, performance. I know it'll be great moments in Weasel and uh, how he tries to figure out a way uh, to uh, make the Republican Party look like the victims here. I'm really looking forward to that. That'll yeah. be uh, <laughs> more more pivot feet than LeBron gets. You know? <laughs> yes, he gets the guy he just gets. Pivots. He pivots. 
like the day after the insurrection, remember what he said? He was like, he was, he was distancing himself from the whole thing. I think this cast a cloud in the whole Trump era. Now he's like pivoted again. You know, Um, how fast was that? He gets that. There was what. There was a clip last year, speaking of, of LeBron, literally, it was a clip where he literally took like two extra steps. He just kind of oh, had a brain freeze. Oh, yeah, but nobody, it, it, he was just walking. He, it, Mickey wasn't driving to the basket. He was bringing a ball up to court. I could send you the link. And he just forgot, kind of forgot where he was. And he took two extra steps. <laughs> and the, no, and the, you see the coach jumping up and down and like waving his hand. Oh, no. He, he, wa- he walks every time down the floor. But I, I, you know, you and I both love and respect LeBron, I think, both as a player and what he does outside of basketball as well. I just think he's. He's a fascinating guy, and I'm I'm a fan of his. But yes, the bottom line is, you know, many pivot feet are allowed to uh, <laughs> the superstar of this generation. So Lindsey Graham they probably said the same thing about Jordan, though, right? They said the same thing about Dr. J. The how many how many steps can these guys take as they're driving the past? No, the thing about Jordan was uh, he he was allowed to get away with push offs. It wasn't the steps so much for Jordan. It, yeah. yeah. It, it, the refs, I mean, you're, the, your, your larger point is absolutely on target. He gets away with murder. So there's that, uh, oh, here we're having a basketball conversation. So when the dream team came together in 1992 uh, and for the Olympics, I know, holy God, yeah. <laughs> and you had, uh, they were posing for a photo and it was uh, Magic Johnson, Larry Joe Bird, and Michael Jordan, three of the greatest stars ever to play the game of basketball, were posing for a photo. And the photographer said, could you guys get a little closer together so, you know, for the shot? And Larry and Magic Johnson said to uh, Larry Bird, be careful, Larry, you get too close to Michael, they're going to call a foul on you. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> that just kind of sums it all That's up. That's a classic line. You know, you're yeah. totally right. That forearm, that little push-off, yeah. Yeah, that was the Michael Jordan little push-off. All right, uh, we We'll, we'll uh, shift. We'll close down with some uh, Chicago politics. Mick and I are capable of doing whole shows in Chicago, whole shows in national. Uh, I'm telling you, two geeks. All right. <laughs> I've been having a lot of fun with this one, uh, Mick. Mayor Lori Lightfoot uh, has shifted her floor leader, uh, and she's brought in uh, Alderman Michelle Harris, will now uh, be her floor, floor leader from the 8th Ward, uh, replacing Gilbert uh, Viegas from the 36th Ward. I kept, <laughs> Apparently, this is somehow or other going to lead into a whole new uh, age of wonderful relations between uh, Mayor Lori Lightfoot and the Chicago City Council. In general, Mick, what do you make of the shifting of floor leaders by the mayor? Go ahead. Well, something's clearly not working. Right. Um, so is uh, was uh, w- was Gilbert like just uh, upset because he couldn't stay on the mayor's team like he just opposed her stuff. Was he being rebuffed? I mean, he's only been in. Is this his second full term? Um, so he's only been I believe he's only been in office for not six years, right? About going on six year, which is not nothing. But she, my point is that she picked him as her floor leader when he had only served one term in the city council. So that in itself, I thought was, um, even at the time, I was kind of like, well, that's interesting, but is he ready for that job? Um, does he have the knowledge? Does he, you know, have the institutional history, the relationships? 
setting aside that that specific question, you, what you're asking is, what does it show? It shows that something or many things aren't going right with the mayor's relationship with with alder creatures. And, uh, you know, as is so often the case in politics, um, you either, uh, whether it's the person who's responsible or not, you sometimes ask for somebody to quit. You demand ahead. You throw somebody off the bus. Or um, <laughs> in this case, it appears that maybe, uh, I mean, I think they're both claiming that it was mutual. And so we don't know, was a resignation requested or was one simply given before it was requested? The bottom line is something wasn't working. So they said, forget it. And now she's claiming she's going to have a fresh start. And you're right. The narrative is that what we really need was someone who is more experienced. That's the problem, um, which could be part of the problem. But I think the bigger problem and what you're getting at is uh, the mayor. You know, it's, is the floor leader the issue or is the, the leader of the floor leader the issue? Um, and it's almost certainly the leader of the floor leader in the end. Well, Mick, uh, I'm going to take it a little different direction and get your thoughts. You said, uh, when you said, like, is it, what's the problem? And my position, I told you this before we went on the air. I say this all the time. I don't think there was a problem. I think, I don't know, I don't know what Lori Life was crying about. You know, I keep seeing uh, articles in the paper, particularly the Sun-Times, talking about how Rom, you know, would get overwhelming budget votes. And my, and my, like I said to you, I thought, I thought that was a greater problem. Right. Like you get so many aldermen to make such stupid decisions to vote for some of the boneheaded things that these mayors have done, starting with the parking meter. I mean, it mean, doesn't even start with the parking meters, but just exhibit A, the parking yeah, meter right, deal. Right, exactly. And uh, the 50 to nothing budget vote. But that shouldn't be anything we're proud of. I think that was more of a problem than having like a democracy, a debate, uh, different factions saying you got to do X, Y, Z because this is an important issue and the mayor making compromises. And who cares if it's 29 to 21? Who cares if it's 26 to 24? It passed. So I don't buy the notion that there is a quote unquote problem. I believe it's a different city council. You and I have watched city councils evolve over the last 20 years. This There's a collection of outspoken people from the left and the right. You got the Democratic Socialists on the left, and you got the MAGA types, the Napolitano types on the right. And it's, yeah, it's not no, like the old no, days. Go ahead. I, I agree with you. The dissension, the debate, I'm all for it. I think that's a great thing. Uh, when we were talking about what's the problem, I was saying from from – the mayor's standpoint from the standpoint of her team there was a problem that's why they needed to make a change you know and the other thing is this job of whipping votes if that is the job of the floor leader the mayor's floor leader is is not doesn't fall that responsibility doesn't fall to that position alone the mayor has staff the mayor has intergovernmental affairs team who is also um supposed to be working with aldermen to to uh Feed their concerns to, uh, you know, stay in touch with them, to get them on board when they need to, to do the deal making. Um, I think the bigger problem is that um, that the mayor routinely, she did it again this week, I saw quoted, where she routinely will come out and basically blast everybody else <laughs> for um, practices that she 
sort of paints as unethical and unseemly that she engages in herself and frankly should be engaging in more of them. And what I mean is like horse trading. Horse trading is part of politics. You got to have friends to get something done. You got to make a deal once in a while. Um, especially if you are trying to build a coalition and you just, as you just described among a group of, of, of people who are um, very diverse in their viewpoints, their political positions, their wards who elected them and why they got elected. Um, you know, some wards elect aldermen because they want the streets to be clean. They want tree trimming. Other wards elect aldermen because they want someone who is a vocal leader on social issues. You know, it's, it's a pretty diverse group of people who see their jobs in a lot of different ways, I think. And so, um, so it's a little more complicated than just, uh, the way the lenses has been looking at, looked at recently, but, but, you know, to read the mayor, basically like, I don't buy votes, you know, I I'm different. And that's why they're all mad at me. I'm just kind of like, well, well, why they're all mad at you. If they're all mad at you is because you say things like, that. yeah, I know you just you insulted know, them. Yeah. It's just insulted everybody who, you know, not, not everybody who makes a deal is on the take, you know, not, not every, not everyone is like, you know, getting money from a TIF deal on the side and then voting on the TIF deal, you know, like Ed Burke has done yeah. for years. That's different from, can we cut a deal? What are you going to do about re up, you know, reinvesting in mental health services that will bring me over to your side in order to vote for this budget or, or whatever, you know, yeah, those kinds of deals can and should happen. And so to vilify everybody who's engaged in a deal and to act like you don't do it when you do, I think, is one of the reasons why people get frustrated. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. And uh, so let me ask you this. Uh, one of the things uh, in today's uh, sometimes uh, your old friend, uh, Alderman um, O'Connor, Pat O'Connor for the 40th Ward. <laughs> My old uh, friend, yes. Friend. <laughs> That's usually how I identify myself. It's Pat O'Connor's old friend. I just always throw that out there to make sure my guests are listening. I do that to Ramada every, uh, your good friend, Gwyneth Paltrith. uh, (laughs) She does it back to me now too, by the way. Yeah. Well, Uh, I was going to say, if either of us is an old friend of Pat O'Connor's, it's most certainly you. If only by the, the date, uh, you first talked to or were spurned by Pat O'Connor. Uh, uh, Anyway, uh, Patrick O'Connor is waxing uh, nostalgically about how he was the maestro of the city council during the Rom years, and he just so brilliantly handled the legislative flow so there'd be overwhelming support for Rom's initiatives, and the city was just so much of a, a better place for that. And after I was done regurgitating uh, lunch, uh, I concentrated on this message. So... In your humble opinion, even a maestro of the legislative process, like the great Patrick O'Connor, could he muster up votes of 40 to 45 in favor of a budget in this city council in which, as you accurately pointed out, Alderman ran on platforms of not being a rubber stamp. Carlos Ramirez Rosa did not win by saying, I'm going to be a rubber stamp to the mayor. Your old Maria Haddon did not win by being a... You know, Andre Vasco, none of them. So could even the great Patrick O'Connor, great in quotes, uh, muster 45 votes for a mayor's budget or mayor's uh, initiatives this time? Or have we just 
moved on to a new phase of Chicago. I, I think it's a new era. I think he would struggle to do that. I don't think he would. I think, um, I, I agree with you. I think that they would, uh, maybe the votes might be a few votes closer just because he does have some institutional knowledge of some things and he is, you know, Pat O'Connor was a horse trader. So maybe he would be better at it. I don't know, you know, um, but I agree with you. I think times have changed. And we should note that Carlos defeated an alderman who himself was not a rubber stamp. He, uh, Ray Colon, you and I cannot have enough opportunities to point out that Ray Cologne was one of the five who voted against the aforementioned parking meter deal. Now, was he a perfect alderman? Clearly, his, uh, his ward decided that he was not and decided to um, go in a different direction. But just to point out that, you know, um, Carlos promised a new day and a new voice in the city council, but the guy he beat wasn't exactly, you know, just an automatic uh, shoe-in A vote either. Now, Mick, you could say, Ben, your old friend, uh, Ray Colon, and it would be right. I I, I had a deal with this the other day uh, on the show and in a column. And I'm just speaking for myself, so I'm not going to put you in this position. But I just, I'm getting old now, Mick. I'm just revealing everything, okay? I have favorites. <laughs> I have favorites. Kelly Cassidy is one of my favorites. I put it out there. She's funny as all hell. She always comes on the show. She'll answer any freaking question you throw at her. Uh, and so she's one of my, Bernie Stone, you know this, was one of my favorites. Oh, he would yeah. give me grief, but always return a call. Ben, the problem with you, you know what I mean? <laughs> May he rest in peace. He's one of my favorites. I got favorites. Ray hey, Cologne Ber- was one Bernie, of my favorites. Bernie yelled at me one time on live television. Yes. And it's- I, too, was very fond of Bernie and think of him fondly to this day. Yeah. I agree with you. It wasn't so much his governance or his politics necessarily, but what a character. You know? <laughs> and we're reporters. You know, somebody who's professional enough and uh, frankly courageous enough to call you back and answer your questions no matter what you ask, um, I respect that. Yeah. And so, uh, but yeah. we're in a different era. Things yeah. are, um, you know, there, we talked about the partisanship in Congress. Uh, here, it's a bunch of people who mostly identify as Democrats, but it's the full spectrum of the Democratic Party, or maybe a couple people who are sort of on the Republican side who are forced to sort of be non officially nonpartisan for the purposes of running in in city elections. But yeah, there's a there's a there's a diversity here in thought in the way people look at the job, the way they vote. And I am grateful for that. All those years that you and I were watching those 49 to one, 50 to nothing votes, no matter what the issue was, um, I am grateful to have some more dialogue. Yeah. And so, yeah, I admit, so when you said Ray Cologne, it's like, oh, Ray, uh, I have nothing but fond memories of Ray Cologne. Uh, and all right, here we go. Let's see. If uh, dementia is creeping into Mick Dunkey's brains, let's see. And folks, he doesn't have a phone he can look this up on. All right, Mick, you mentioned there were five aldermen who voted no in the parking meter deal. You mentioned one was Ray Cologne. Name the other four. Go. Tony Preckwinkle, now yes. the Cook County Board President. Leslie Hairston. Yes. Still uh, the fifth ward alderman. Right. Alder person. 
Billy Acasio, who was uh, the (laughs) alderman of the 26th Ward, um, and then left soon after to go work for Governor Quinn, then Governor Quinn. Um, Is that, did I name four? You named four. Uh, I can't believe you're not naming this one. And of course, Scott Wagasback, now the chair of the Finance Committee. Yes. So, yeah. Scotty, he's a different position now with he's got to hold his tongue uh, because he's the finance chair uh, for Lori Life. All right. We've run We could probably talk another hour, but we're running out of time. So we're going to close uh, with a little sports talk. Mick Dunkley, we did a whole show about you not watching pro football anymore. Every now and then, I guess you sneak college football in. Um Will you, Mick Dumpke, be watching the Super Bowl this Sunday? I will not. No. Wow. I've, I haven't watched in several years. I believe it's at least, this will be, I believe, the fourth Super Bowl in a row that I have not watched at all. Wow. What a sacrifice. Uh, it's not will... really for me. It's, I, I, you know, I actually find it pretty liberating. I don't have to, I don't have to endure it. I, I've come to just, you know, let it go. <laughs> I just saw the commercials and everything. I know a lot of people get excited about that. I am glad to be rid of it, but ultimately, no, it's my, as we've discussed before, all of your rabid fans and, and my rabid three fans who know uh, my various proclamations. Um, I am, uh, was never a huge NFL fan, but I would follow the bears of course. Um, here, you know, catch some games here and there, turn on the radio while I'm driving around, whatever. Um, but now I'm just done with the NFL. Uh, wow. So. Well, I will be watching. I love the Super Bowl. Unfortunately, I will not be at my dear friend Cap's house where I traditionally go and we have a feast and then all our other friends are there gathered. It'll be just me alone. My wife, if she feels sorry for me, will sit in for a little while. She can't stand. I mean, she doesn't care about football one way or the other. Uh, and I will sit there, Mick, and I will do what I do now for the last three years. I will watch the utter brilliance of Patrick Mahomes and I will scream to the heavens that the Bears are the biggest racists in football, that they could look at Patrick Mahomes and look at Mitch Trubisky and think it would be a good idea to take Trubisky over Mahomes. And then I'll scream at the press corps, Mick, because I don't think that nobody, I don't think they adequately address this issue of a potential racial bias on the part of the Chicago Bears. I don't believe the Bears have ever been forced to. I know if, if, if God forbid, if, like, they'd be like a gas that I would even suggest it. But when I look at, like, who, look at that. Like, you had this unbelievable, once-in-a-lifetime quarterback who's just spectacular. It's almost like watching Steph Curry uh, play basketball the way he plays football. You know, I think of the two. And he got this... One of the mill mediocre guy, Trubisky. How, Mick? But help me out here. I know you don't follow NFL anymore, but you follow. How can you look at those two guys and come to the conclusion that Mitch Trubisky is better? Go ahead. Well, I, I can't. I, I mean, you and I have talked about this before. I believe on and off the air repeatedly. I know it's a recurring <laughs> theme for you, and I applaud you for continuing to beat this drum. Um, I don't know. I mean, as I remember, as, as you mentioned, I'm more of a college fan. When I do tune in, it's almost always to the college game. And my recollection is that even coming out of college, Mahomes was much better, wasn't he? He was at Texas Tech, is yes. that what I recall? 
and uh, yes. Trubisky was at North Carolina State. Uh, I'm not sure if it was State or North Carolina. It doesn't matter. I whatever. One yeah, the, one of the Carolinas. Yeah. Um, I, I I thought it was it maybe in North Carolina. I, I don't um, remember. Anyway, I, I I thought that Mahomes was better even then. But be that as it may, I I don't have anything to uh, prove you wrong. Um, but I will say, um, uh, your beloved Bulls, as you would say, um, have managed to screw up a number of their own picks and roster moves. Um, and it, racism does not appear to be a factor there. It just appears to be incompetence. Yes. Um, so there always is that possibility as well. Well, then they should say that because they should say we're not racist. We're just incompetent. <laughs> which I could buy. I, if they said that, I could buy that. I go, we're idiots. We should not. We, we are so stupid that we looked at Mitch Trubisky and we looked at Patrick Mahomes and we thought this guy who is mediocre will be better than this guy who's a once in a lifetime. It's just, if, if, if that's your defense, I mean, I would, which is the worst defense? Well, we're actually racist and we don't believe a black man can be quarterback. That would be one defense. Or we're complete idiots and we <laughs> we should not hold this job. Mick, please help me out here. Which is a better defense? I'm struggling with this right well, now. Well, I, I think that um the sad truth of the matter is, and, and the uh the all you know, the serious truth of this is that um given the state of the NFL, uh I mean, how many black head coaches are there? How many black assistant like how many black coordinators are there, right? There's almost none right yeah. now. Um, yeah. And despite all the conversation that's gone on about this in the last decade plus, going going back before that, but I know for sure in the last decade, there's been no progress made whatsoever. So most of the players are black, um, but the uh, the institution has, um, I'll be very, why, why I was going to be polite, why be polite? The, the institution is is racist and they need to show that they're not. Um, because otherwise, uh, you know, the proof is what I see that the institution is racist. And that's why I don't follow anymore. I know my my uh, my little one person protest doesn't matter. And there are other places you could point out my hypocrisy. Um, I get it. But this is one place where I'm just too put off to enjoy the product on the field anymore. And and other people who um, other people of all different racial backgrounds love the NFL and I'm not uh, saying that they shouldn't or anything like that. I'm just saying this is my own personal thing. I just can't deal with it. All right. Good enough. He's drawing the line. Uh, I think that's about enough time. We've, uh, uh, we may have smashed the record for talking. Uh, I will say the, we're, I'm going to make good on my promise. Uh, Mick and I are going to take the deep dive on the year 1971. Uh, I've been looking forward to this conversation forever. It's Mick's hypothesis that 1971 was the best year for music, uh, popular music, and he has a whole bunch of albums to prove his point. Uh, for the sake of argument, I'm taking 1973, only for the sake of argument. <laughs> I, got, I just can't let, you know what I mean? I got to come up with my own year. Uh, and we're going to uh, do a deep dive in 1971. I'm going to bring in politics. We're not going to just do um, oh, absolutely. music, got politics. That, that World Series was a great world. I know Mick wasn't even alive, but the World Series of 1971 was a, a great World Series. Roberto Clemente's last World Series, he died uh, after that. So uh, lots hey, of I, I, was, I was alive. I was, uh, that was played in October of 1971, right? So I was, uh, I was, um, had just passed 
or it's just approaching my sixth month birthday. I, I recall it. And your response to Clemente's uh, performance was goo goo gaga. <laughs> I believe that was your, uh, your quote. Uh, all right. That's the great Mick Dumpke. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader, too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.